thanks for joining me. Hey, this is Joe coming to you from Growing in the City. I'm hanging out with my friends at uh, Talking Seaweed Studios, and today we're going to talk about growing cannabis because I'm a professional cannabis grower. How do you know? Well, this is all pros dress, isn't it, right? A professional. Actually, I had business meetings throughout the day as uh, the state of Massachusetts is now coming online for recreational and we've got a lot of uh, prospects coming to us looking for guidance and consulting on how to do it. There's a lot of moving parts and that's what we do. So at New England Grassroots Institute, uh, we're consultants. So we can help you through the process if you're considering getting into a micro business or cultivating or you're looking for a license from tier one to tier 10. We can guide you through that process of application and citing, things like that you're gonna to need to know. But let's get on to the topic of growing cannabis and how do you start, where do you go? Now, if you're new to it and you're just exploring it or maybe you wanna do it for medical reasons, you wanna have cannabis for someone in the family that's not feeling well or cancer or PTSD or Crohn's disease and Parkinson's, I can go on and on because the plant itself is basically a miracle plant and it can provide all sorts of relief for stress and pain and many, many things. But how do you get started? Well, I can tell you for me, 30 years ago, it was at a time where there was no cannabis. It was really, uh, we called it dirt weed, earth weed, you know, Mexican press weed with extra seeds and sticks and it was just terrible. It'd give you a headache. And uh, that's where it all began. But in, in the last 30 years, on and off, uh, I've been working with the plant and I really love it. I use it for myself medically. Uh, it helps me to stay in health. I don't take any pharmaceuticals. I use cannabis as my medicine, also food as my medicine, which will be a topic for another episode. But how do you get started and where do you want to go? I guess the first question you need to ask yourself is why are you growing? What's the purpose of you growing? Is it for medical or is it recreational? So that'll help you go in which direction. Now myself, I'm an organic grower. I like to grow in soils. I like to, you know, I'll add organic amendments, you know, top dressings and things like that, liquid nutrients. Uh, I've always been an organic grower. Um, I know there's plenty of growers out there that use the synthetics. Uh, I'm not opposed to it. It's just not for me. If you're gonna do it for recreational, that's fine. But I think the forward curve and where it's going is going to be organics. So if you want a sustainable competitive advantage, if you're going to be in the business, you're going to want a really high grade, high quality, just a beautiful finish on your product to attract consumers that will stay with you. And I think the differentiator in the in the future will be the organics. Um, doesn't mean that your synthetic growing won't continue to be out in the market, but everybody and their sisters and cousins will be growing it. And I think it, the market will get flooded. But to get started at home, I would suggest that there are several books out there that you want to look at. There's online stuff. Uh, Garden Saver is a book that I call it my Bible. The Garden Saver is going to help you to un un identify failures that are going on in your grow, whether it's you've got pests or you've got you know, too much of one nutrient, too much nitrogen, not enough of another. You have deficiencies. Calcium, magnesium is a very popular one to have deficiencies. or too much watering, all these little things. So let me just give you a kind of a high level overview of what you can expect if you are gonna do a home grow for yourself and you're just new to this, maybe this is your first grow or you're, you've just started your, your first season of growing and you've had some failures and maybe we can kind of redirect you in a way to, uh, to really get off, off the right start, and right foot as they say, so that you have a successful grow and you have a a fantastic product when you're done and you want to continue to improve on your craft and in this hobby of yours. So when you when you're going to get started, you say, okay, I'm gonna grow for myself. It's really I don't need a lot. In the state you're in, obviously the first thing you want to do is check the regulations and the laws of your state. You can go right online, you can Google it online and figure out, okay, in my state they have a limitation of how many plants you can have in each household. So if you're an individual in the state I reside in, you can have six plants that you can grow. If there's two people in the household over 21 years of age and they're gonna grow, you can have a maximum of 12 plants. So that includes indoor and outdoor. That's another thing to consider. Are you gonna grow indoors or outdoors? Which is better? Well, they both have their own set of challenges. If you're growing outdoors, well, you have a lot of challenges out there. Number one, the weather. 
theft. Uh, you have deer and animals and rabbits, all these things that are going to attack the plant. So you have to figure out how to protect the plant. And you could grow this beautiful, beautiful plant. And at the very end of the season, you get a very wet season like we did last year. And a lot of people growing outdoors had issues where they had botrytis or mold, bud rot they call it where there was just too much moisture and when the buds get very tight overnight when the moisture comes out the condensation you see it on your lawn your lawn is all wet well so is your cannabis and that water stays inside the bud and you have a potential to get bud rot because there's no air flowing through there like an indoor grow you've got fans blowing that are always pushing air through the plant to keep that moisture coming out so that you don't get that buildup of moisture and water that you get the bud rot from so there are methods to, to address that. There's products you can use that are organic that help reduce that potential uh, and techniques to, you know, maybe a, a cover over it to help you. So those are things that we teach in our school. Uh, I do run a course. I have a six-week course on growing. I have a one-day course, which is just two hours, which is similar to what I'm doing now. It's just kind of giving you a high-level overview of things to look for and understand that you might not have known. So when I go back to when I first started growing, well, I didn't know about water. Water is extremely important. I didn't know about pHing the water. I didn't know that I was supposed to get the chlorine out of the water that causes problems with your plants. So maybe we'll talk a little bit about you growing at your home first, not outdoors. So let's talk about the indoor grow. So first you're gonna find a place in your, your where you reside, whether it's a spare room, a basement, an attic, I really don't recommend the attics unless it's an insulated attic that you can control the the temperature up there but typically they're, they're too hot you know why i know that that's where i started in an attic it was uninsulated it was going great until we hit june and all of a sudden it's 90 plus degrees in the attic and the plants went oop they just hung down and i the, the gentleman that was teaching me at that time was from colorado and he said, well, what's the temperature? And I said, I don't know. I didn't have a thermometer up there. I just, he says, well, how hot is it? I said, well, if I stay up there for five minutes, I start sweating. He says, it's too hot. You're going to kill the plants. So we have to find a different location. Whether it's a shed out in your backyard or a basement. I like basements. Basements are nice because they're typically much cooler down in the lower section of your house. And that's the other concern is how much energy are you going to consume to actually grow? So you have to be aware of your electricity prices and things of that nature. So I love to use tents for growing because you can set up a room like that. You pop it up, you can have a tent set up in 15, 20 minutes. Probably within an hour you have it all set and dressed out with your ventilation and your fans and your lights and things like that. Uh, but a tent allows you to control an atmosphere. I love the 4x4 tents. They're actually usually 4.5 by 4.5. Gives you a little space on each side. You could actually put a flood tray table inside bring it up off the floor so that if you're somebody that's, you know, it hurts to bend over and you need something that's a little bit raised off, that's a nice technique as well. But you can just put your pots in there, whether it's cloth pots or plastic pots, and you can start your grow in there. You can control the airflow. You can control the temperatures, the humidity. So again, that's why I really like a tent. It's very convenient. They're inexpensive today. There are some models on the market that are a bit pricey, but there's a reason for that, and it's the quality of the, the material and the product and the ability to stretch them and very strong and they hold up, no light leaks. That's another concern is light leaks. Uh, the plant has a certain cycle that it's looking for so that you don't interfere with its cycle. And when you start vegetative, um, you're gonna be an 18 hour cycle. And then when you're flower cycle, you're 12-12. So, uh, an 18 hour represents the summertime. You know, in the summertime you have an 18 hours of light and the plant thrives and it vegetates and it grows very beautifully nice. And then when you shift the light to 12-12, now the plant says, oh, it's fall. It's time to start flowering or budding. Uh, you know, you start to get the resin production and things like that. So, but let's back up a little bit and let's talk about the seeds. Once you source the seeds, and there are reputable places you can order online. Maybe you have a friend. Now, if you're getting them out of a bag, then you don't know what strain it is. Even though someone says, oh, this was an OG Kush, and you don't really know. But if you buy from a reputable source, you know it and has indicators on there, their flowering cycles, you know, whether it's 55 days, 65 days. You also want to look at strain types. There's sativas that are 
long and lanky and they don't produce a lot of yield uh, and sativa brings you up that's why they call it sativa up it modulates you up and gets you accelerated in indicas small and short and a little bit more bushy and big wide leaves and those indicas bring you down or in the couch they call it a couch lock that's sedative and relaxing good for sleep but if you need something that modulates get you going cranking you want to go clean the entire house or your business shop your office whatever it is look at the sativas and then you get your hybrids the hybrids are a mix of both mixed together and I personally I like hybrids um, and then I work on because I do breeding I'm looking at breeding plants that lean in either one direction or lean in the other leaning means indica leaning or sativa leaning because most of the strains on the market today are hybrids, and then they lean one direction or another. Uh, when you say land race, well, to me, a land race is a strain that's never been touched by human. That means it grows naturally and wildly. That's a land race. If, it, if you're saying it's a land race, but you touch it or man touches it, it's now cultivated variety. So when you're looking at it, a lot of the seeds that we get today are from indoor grows. Uh, so the plant is already conditioned to indoor growing. So look at the strains you want to grow. Uh, also keep in mind that different strains have different um, nutrient requirements. Uh, like some, some strains are very aggressive on some nutrients more than another. Hence getting back to having that book called The Garden Saver. That will help you immensely to try to quickly identify why is this strain acting like this and I have another totally different strain that's thriving but I'm giving it the same nutrients aha there's the difference as you start to add multiple strains each strain has a different requirement you might find some strains that will work with the same nutrient mix and thrive fantastically but keep that in mind that you want to maybe do a little research on the plant you're going to grow and some plants are very, very sensitive and finicky and they stress out very easily. And that's another factor. A little tip here is stress. The objective of growing cannabis, even though it is a weed and it will just grow on its own, what we're trying to do is we're trying to stimulate performance. And the performance of the plant is kind of like for those that are watching this that are car guys. I'm a car guy. I love fast cars and fast bikes and I like to go fast. When you are building a race car or a street machine, you're always looking to do a little bit more in performance, whether it's adding nitrous oxide or suspension change or the tackiness of the tires to get a grip if you're racing. In plant growing, it's similar in cannabis is I'm always looking at it as how do I tweak and dial in and, and add certain things to give me a higher performance so that I can take this strain that does well, but do it, have it do it exceptional. That's what I'm always going for. So when you start to hone your craft, you start to find out what factors affect the plant. And this leads me back to the stress on the plant. Stress happens in a multitude of ways. And your number one goal is stress reduction and all means every time you can. Because if you overstress the plant from different things that you'll do that you won't know is a mistake until it happens, you could trigger that strain to turn into what's called hermaphrodite. Hermaphrodite is a male-female plant. What happens is it starts to get pollen sacs because it senses there's something wrong with its environment and the, and the plant wants to sustain its own strain. So it pollinates itself. And now you have pollinated plants that ruin, as you're trying to go for a sensimilia, sensimilia stands for without seed, which gives you the highest potency of your resins and the highest resin productions. Male plants lose the potency and you have a lot of seeds in it. Now, back in our early days of cannabis and in the 80s and the 70s and the 60s, it was all grown outdoors and it all had seeds. It was just a matter of how much seed you got in there. Um, you still got your result. You could, get, you could smoke it and enjoy it, but not today with everything being sensimilia. Now it's a matter of being competitive on high grade, high quality terpene profiles and the the scents coming off of it and the look and the colors, the purples and the greens and the yellows, all these things are factors. So stress reduction is very, very important in growing. And so you have to look at all those factors that cause stress. 
And if you do have a plant that goes hermaphrodite on you, you want to eliminate it from your grow as quickly as you can. Even though it's not finished, you either isolate it into a separate place because it's going to pollen. It's going to have pollen sacs and it will pollinate your entire crop. And then those seeds, I just basically throw them out because they're hermaphrodite seeds. So they're holding that genetics of hermaphrodite. So you have a high propensity if you're going to grow those seeds out of having a, a plant that will turn hermaphrodite very easily on you. So always stay away from those seeds whenever possible. Now it doesn't mean you can't grow them out and get a, a nice phenotype out of it, which is like in, my, in a family, when you say phenotype, to me that means I come from a large family. We have similarities, but none of us look exactly the same and act exactly the same, but we have a lot of similarities. And that's what I mean by growing seeds out and get phenotypes that come out. They have different expressions. So stress reduction is important. Another really important factor is water. Where is the water coming from? Most of the time it's coming from your municipal water supply or tap water in your house. Things you need to be aware about tap water. Now in a lot of towns they're now shifting from chlorine, so they add chlorine to keep bacteria growth down within the pipes and into the water supply. Now chlorine is the same thing they put in what? pools in your backyard. You put chlorine in there to keep the bacteria from growing, right? Now let me ask you this, do any of you drink chlorine water from the pool? No you don't, right? But you drink it from the tap water because it's okay, right? I disagree. I don't think it's good. Now I know for a fact that if you take tap water from your faucet and you put it in a jug, go down to your grow and pour it into the soil, you're damaging the soil. Because if you're an organic gardener and you're growing in soil, you want to make sure the beneficial bacteria in that soil, which is the living bacteria that grows, it breaks down the organic material in the soil, and then it feeds it basically to your root system. It also stimulates your root system with growth hormones that makes more roots and more root surface because the living soil of the, the beneficial bacteria in the soil feed off the sugars from the roots that the plant is bringing down. So there's a symbiotic relationship between the soil and the plant. The plant helps, the, the, I'm sorry, the soil helps the plant thrive and grow and get fed. They feed each other, so they work in unison. But if you pour chlorine on that, you're gonna kill the rhizosphere. That's the soil, that's the living soil, the nematodes, bacteria, everything that's happening in that soil. Uh, and it makes a big difference. If you're growing outdoors, they call it terroir. It's a French word for basically in, in, in the wine industry, they use that term terroir because you could grow that same strain of grape in France, but you could also grow that same strain in California and they would be totally different in their expressions because of the terroir, which is the earth, the soil, the environment, the air, things like that. And what we're doing in on the indoor grow is we're trying to mimic the outdoors inside and we're trying to control all the factors. So water, let's get back on topic there. Chlorine is a killer. If you're gonna use tap water, you have to check with the municipality. A lot of times you can go right online and check the water reports to find out these two facts. Are you using chlorine or are you using chloramine? Chloramine is a synthetic version of chlorine. It's less expensive for the town and it doesn't dissipate. If you take a, a gallon of an open jug gallon and you put water in it from your tap, that has chlorine in it, the chlorine will dissipate over 24 to 48 hours. Then it's safe to use that water to pour on your plants Ah, after we pH it. We'll come back to pH in just a minute because that's an important factor as one of those I call dialing it in, but we'll come back in a second. Now, chloramine does not dissipate. Ah, that causes a problem for you. In that case there, you're gonna to need to make a purchase of a water filtration system and not just any water filtration system. You're gonna to need to use what's called a reverse osmosis filtration system or known in the industry as an RO. The RO systems have a membrane that squeezes out all impurities, all additives to that, any undissolved solids, it squeezes them all out. However, in my opinion, not environmentally friendly. For the reason is that most of these devices today use three gallons of water to make one usable gallon of water for your grow. Now recently I was in a grow store and there's a new machine out that uses two gallons to make one usable gallon. Now if you're in a municipality that's on, in my area, they have an area called MWRA, which is 
it is a water system that you pay higher rates for, but they also charge you for the sewer discharge. And how they measure that is the input. The input coming in is going through your water meter. When it goes through the water meter, it clicks the digits. Okay, the digits go up, and that means your discharge, at least in my area, is, is like double the amount you pay for the incoming. So if you're taking in all that water and filtering just to make usable water for your grow in your basement, your costs are going up. That's the other factor, is looking at how much is it gonna cost me to grow my good cannabis in my house, or is it gonna be just less expensive to go and buy it at a store? Now, so looking at that factor, if you're not using a well or well water, if you have well water, fantastic. I highly recommend that you send a sample out for testing to find out what's in there. Now I've done that in a, in a place I was once before, sent the samples out, came back stellar, beautiful readings, except it had high iron, which is okay, I can work with that because I'm just using it for my plants and growing and that's fine. But if you test your well, always wanna make sure you have no contaminants that maybe you were unaware of. Because it's a well, you think, oh, well, it's a well, everything's fine, no problem, and you're drinking it but you could have contaminants from a, a discharge further upstream that you're un, unaware of or a waste site that's not far from you that's leaching down into the aquifers underground. So I always recommend send it out for a test. Now that you have a reverse osmosis machine, then you can just pipe that in and fill up your jugs and you're ready to go. Good clean water and that's excellent. If you have a well, excellent. Uh, if you have a town that has chlorine and you don't want to make the investment in the reverse osmosis machine, you can take your, your gallon jugs or your five gallon jugs and fill them up and just let them sit. I would say if you're going five gallons, let it sit for at least two days. Let the chlorine off gas and come out of the water. Then the next thing, let's talk about pH. That's potential of hydrogen is what it stands for. So what we wanna look at the pH scale, it's from zero to 14. Seven is neutral. Now remember we talked about race cars a few minutes ago for you car guys out there. When you're trying to you know, get high performance out of your plants, you're doing the same thing. Now, when you adjust the pH, you're optimizing the nutrient uptake into your plant. So if you're running alkaline, alkaline is over seven, you're gonna slow down the plant and it's not gonna uptake the optimal amount of nutrients into the plant to give you, again, that high performance, that high yield you're looking for. Now, a lot of the cannabis plants, if you're growing in soil, they like it in the lower acidic range. So personally, my target spot on is 6.2 on the pH. Now you can be anywhere from 6, 6.0 to 6.5 is a nice range, that's comfortable. Uh, I like to use the analogy, if you, if you shoot darts or you're shooting at a dartboard and you're trying to hit the bullseye, the very center, you know, for the dart players, that's like, boom, I wanna hit it there. So you always, I always try to hit 6.2. Doesn't mean if I'm off under, I'm okay. So if I hit 6.3 to 6.5, I'm fine with that. It's okay, but I'm still always trying to tweak all of my variables so that I can be just tight, 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 because I want to win, I want an enormous yield and production. So pH is very important for nutrient uptake. And if you look at the charts, if you just Google that, you'll find nutrient charts you'll see there's a little fluctuation of range, but if you look at the 6.2, it touches every one of the components that you need to pull into the plant for optimal growth. So, so we talked about a few things. Now, let's kind of go back to the beginning again, now that we talked to these components, because they all kind of tie together. Now you get your seeds. Well, what do you do? Do you stick them in the dirt? Sure, you could do that. I would say that you're gonna germinate them first. There's two techniques for germination. You can just take paper towel, fold it over a few times, moisten it with spring water, okay? Just get a bottle of spring water or get, de uh, you wanna get um, denatured, not denatured, that's not the word I'm looking for. I'm looking for, it's distilled water. If you can get distilled water, you can buy in the gallons at any of the pharmacies. Just look for the ones with no fluoride in there. Fluoride is, Foo foo, it's bad, it's really bad. But if you're, if you're germinating seeds, just a little distilled water or spring water, uh, or if you have a well water, just get the, the napkin wet. I like to do it usually on a little plate, uh, and then I get it wet, and I put my seeds in there, and I just keep them apart a little bit, and just put them in, fold the, 
fold the paper towel over on it. Now, here's another thing that you want to do, is put it in a Ziploc bag. If you don't, gonna, the paper towel is going to dry out really fast and you're going to get frustrated because you'll have taproot and all of a sudden you forgot one day and you didn't check on it and they dried out and you ruined the seeds. And seeds are very expensive these days. They, on average, they're $10 and up. You know, in the lower, expen less expensive seeds are 8 to $10 and then you can get some really expensive seeds that are $125, $150. They're very rare and hard to come by. So you want to really take care of that. So if you're using the paper towel method, put it in a Ziploc. Just make sure it stays moist. Now I like to do is take and put it on a little little plate and then I put the plate on top of a heat mat. So you can get these little heat mats. You can buy them at the grocery stores. They're just for germinating. Uh, I personally use one that's four feet long because I do, in the winter time, I use that as kind of a radiant heat and I put my grow bags on top of it and keep the soil nice and warm during the winter time. But if you're doing a big project of germination, you could use a big one, but they make these little small ones, they're like $10, $12. And it gets the temperature up on that plate, but it also diffuses it just a little bit so it doesn't overheat, all right? And that helps to accelerate the seeds to pop open. And then you're gonna have a taproot that comes out. Now I'm looking for probably anywhere from a quarter to a half an inch on the taproot coming out and then I'm gonna put it in my soil. Now, what I like to do is use a little solo cup or just some small little pot so I don't waste a lot of soil because the fact is that plant eventually may even turn into a male and I'm gonna get rid of it in some cases. So start with the small solo cups. It doesn't take up a lot of space, a lot of real estate, and you get your soil in there and you just stick your finger and right up to the top of your fingernail. That's it. You don't have to go deep. You don't wanna go deep. Just to the top of your fingernail, just stick it in the soil. Take the little seed and drop it in with the tap root going down and just gently cover it over. And then you're just gonna moisten that. I like to do is use a spray bottle, especially in the beginning, so I'm not washing away the soil. So don't try to pour, because it's gonna become a big mud puddle. So just take a spray bottle in there, again, with that water that's been basically distilled or spring water, or if you've run it through your reverse osmosis machine, just spray it and get the water on the soil wet, okay? That's all you need to do. There's another technique for germinating. I like to take the mini solo cup, so you can take it just a glass if you want, or even a, a shot glass, and put, again, the, the water inside there and just drop the seeds in it. Now, some of the seeds may float for the first day or so. I like to tap them a few times to get them wet to drop down. Sometimes if they're dried out, they'll stay at the top and they'll never germinate. That can happen. Um, or they just need to rehydrate and it might take a day or two and then they'll sink. And when they sink, just keep an eye on it, check it each day. Sometimes, because I create my own seeds, uh, my seeds will typically pop overnight or within 24 to 48 hours, they already pop out. So, because they're fresh, so I already know they're fresh. Uh, so there's another technique, just pour the water out, just put it right on a dish, and then you can gently put them into your soils and you're off to the race. Now, soil. Soil's important, especially for a very new plant, or especially a seedling. You do not need nutrients on it. All the nutrients it needs is in the seed pod itself. What you wanna do is you wanna look for a seed starter soil, okay? It's very mild, it doesn't have a lot of nutrients in it. It has just what that plant is looking for when it's a seedling. So get yourself a nice little bag of seedling starter and start there. Do not use the regular soil that you're gonna to use to grow it in. Doesn't mean you can't, I've done it, it will work. But again, as a new grower, for you, you want to meet with success. If you meet with success, then you're gonna be passionate about what you're doing. If you meet with failure and resistance and aggravation, you're gonna to wanna to sell your stuff and be out of it, and you won't wanna pursue it. So it's important to just take some of these tips that I'm giving you today so you can get off to the right start. Or if not, come see us, come join us. So check us out at grassroot420.com you can check out our courses there because we teach this stuff. We teach everything about cannabis. There's huge opportunities in this industry. You've got retail coming out, recreational here in our state, and then you've got the medical, so you've got a lot of opportunity for a career. So if growing is one of it, if it's gonna be a passion, there's opportunity there. So back to the basics. So we talked about water, seeds, germinating, filtration, and seed starter, and now we've got it going. So now, the other thing, let's kind of circle back a little bit on the pH. There's two ways of checking the pH. With a pH pen that you just dip into it and it has a reading on it. Now there's different pH pens that have different qualities. You have your inexpensive, 
your inexpensives, you know, they could be $30, $40, and then you can get to the higher end, high quality ones. Uh, you're probably anywhere from $90 to $125 in that range, but don't quote me. I don't sell any equipment. Um, but I do is I like to build relationships with local grow stores. Sure, you can go on Mr. Amazon and buy it from him and save some money and be cheap, right? I like to save money too, but you're hurting yourself. When you deal with some of your local grow stores, and I like to travel around to different grow stores to build rapport and relationships and also to learn from each other. We talk shop, we talk about strains we're working on. Now that it's legal, it's okay to talk about it. Years ago, you couldn't talk to anybody. So you had to learn from trial and error. So I would suggest, strongly suggest, that you make your purchase locally because they'll guide you, they'll help you along the way so that you do meet with success. As you build that relationship, you build friendships. Now remember, those are mom and pop stores. This is the backbone of the United States. We built America on mom and pop, okay? At one point in our reality, we were independent people. We were farmers, we grew, we fed off the land. Now we've become a dependent people. We depend on our government to take care of us, but that's a topic for another day. So back to growing, doing business locally does support the local economy because that mom and pop shop is gonna, they're gonna buy products and services around them and that money stays in your community, which is another benefit. But more importantly, they can guide you for buying that inexpensive light that you said, hey, I can save $50 by buying it online, not knowing it's a main China and it's a knockoff and it doesn't have a, RF interference, blocker, things like that. Next thing you know, you put that light in, you went ha ha to the grocery store, I saved $50 and bought it online and I have Prime and they deliver it the next day and everything's great. Until a couple of weeks later, you get a knock on the door and the cable company's there with a meter going, hey, we've identified your house as uh, having some device that's interfering with your neighbor's cable. We need to fix that. That's a problem. I don't want anybody knocking on my door saying, hey, we want to come in and look around. <laughs> that's not good. Even though it's legal, you still don't want people knowing what you're doing. That's another thing, security. Make sure you follow the regulations and the laws, you have it in a locked room, you should always protect yourself, and don't go bragging to everybody. Loose lip, sink ships, real simple. You wanna talk about your grow and all that sort of stuff, but just don't tell them where you're doing it. Don't say it's at your home, because when you're out vacationing or you're, out, you're not there and somebody comes in and decides they're gonna help themselves to your stuff, gonna be a bad day. So that leads me to another point that, that you need to consider when you're gonna do a grow. Let's imagine you just got yourself a new pet, a dog or a cat, and you wanna go on vacation, but you can't bring the dog or cat with you. What do you do? Maybe you go to a friend and say, hey, can you check on my cat and my dog and feed them every day and let them out so they can do their thing? Aha, growing cannabis is like having a pet. And it's important to understand that because when you start your grow and you say, hey, I got a vacation coming up, it's gonna be 10 days. Well, who's taking care of your plants for 10 days? Ah, gotta think about that. I love to have a grow partner. If you're living with someone, obviously, and you can maybe, if you're not vacationing together, you can work together. But I highly recommend looking at a very close friend, someone that you trust, and maybe doing a collaboration together. Because that collaboration, maybe your friend is growing at their home and you're growing at your home, right? but he's on vacation or she's on vacation at a different time from you and you help each other, just like I would go feed my friend's cat, I'd go and check on his plants, make sure everything's okay, make sure they're watered, make sure the lights are still on, a timer didn't fail, things of that nature. So again, having a grow partner or a collaboration or support with somebody, something to consider and think about. Um, I'm gonna jump back again to the pH because I just re recalled that we talked about the pH pen and the different qualities. But some of you might be working on a very, very tight budget. I understand that. Uh, I grew up that way, I had very little, I had to very source everything and everything had a value and they don't, I don't throw things out. And so another technique of checking your pH and get pH drops, very inexpensive, just a little bottle of, of a liquid and you take this little vial and you scoop up your water, a couple of drops and it turns a color. And then you hold it against, on the, on the bottle it has different color grades from yellow to green and you just match it up and you say, oh, that's 7.0 or that's 6.5. And it's kind of a general number. It's not spot on. Remember we talked about race cars and we want to really dial it in? That's where a meter comes in. Now, again, with uh, pH pens, um, personally, I have the most expensive one I can get my hands on because it's a tool that really makes a difference in your grow. 
Because if you're off just a couple digits, it makes a big impact in the speed and the, in, in the, the quality of your plant when it finishes out. So I would highly say if, it, if money's not that big of a concern, buy a better quality one so you don't have to buy it twice. When you buy the less expensive ones, they have a higher rate of failure. So just be aware of that. Again, so you've got the drops, you get your inexpensive pen, and then you get your higher end pen. Just like any other tool, talk to anybody that's in the trades, they don't buy the cheap hand tools. They buy higher quality because they have staying power, lasting, and they don't fail. Especially, I've had this happen to me. Now I actually have the drops and I have a pen. The pen is my go-to for everything. The drops serve as a backup. Aha, redundancy. I like to have redundancy and backup plan. Now I had a pen fail on me and it can happen. It's an electronic device. Things can go wrong. It was just under a year old. And because I do business locally, right, that vendor that I go to, that store, the gross store, took care of it like that. Here's your new pen, Joe. You're a great guy. We'll send it to the manufacturer. We'll take care of everything. Here's your brand new pen that we're going to replace for you. So that's the other benefit of having a close relationship with your gross store when you have a failure of your equipment. Now, I know if you have a failure with equipment, you're going to call Mr. Amazon and complain that, hey, you sold me something that broke. They're going to say, good luck. How's that working out for you? So there is a downside to buying online. There is an upside for those that want to save a few bucks. So You'll still do it, uh, but I'm saying that you want to try to support your community, support your local businesses. This is how our whole country has grown that way. So we need to get back to basics, folks. But back on topic, um, having that backup is important. When my pen failed, at least I had my drops that served me that I could until I could get to the grocery store to replace that device that was broken. So, so far, I hope this is all starting to make sense to you. And it's important that we talked about seeds sourcing, germinating, soils, seedling starting, soils, no need for any nutrients in the very beginning, making a decision if you're going to be an organic grower or synthetic grower. Uh, you also have to consider whether you're going to grow hydro in water, deep culture, or any of those type of systems. I don't recommend it for a new grower. You'll be frustrated. It takes a little bit more. It's very specific. It's not. It's less forgiving if you make a mistake and you're off just a little bit. You'll have more challenges. I would save that and reserve that as you improve on your craft and you want to explore that. You can go soilless mixes and you can do hydro growing or deep water culture and things like that. So, but in the beginning, I would say you want to be in the soil. It's more forgiving to you and you'll have a nice result and you'll be passionate when you're done because when you have that nice, beautiful medicine that you finish because all cannabis is medicine at the end of the day why do we smoke it we want to escape we want to modulate our moods things like that so it is a medicine ultimately um, so let's kind of move forward just a little bit so we've grown it and we're gonna and I'm gonna talk about, touch upon a couple of advanced techniques now you may not get it yes today but as you start to grow you'll understand so let's talk about increasing our yields so we got the plant going and it's got all these little inner nodes and these branches starting and it's this big and one of the techniques to increase your yield is to pinch out the centerpiece. So where it's growing up in the very beginning, you just get in there with your, your finger and just pinch it out at the very beginning, right by the little leaves, pinch it right out of there. Now what will happen is it'll stimulate the plant to grow out replacements, two. Now you've got two stems. You had one at the beginning. If you left it that way, you would have one big top and a couple of small tops off of your branches. But because you pinched it back, you're going to get two. Now I'm going to share something with you, okay? This is a secret. Okay, it's not a secret. It's called FIMING, F-I-M, and it stands for I missed. <laughs> I'll hold off on the, uh, the word, you know, the F word. So F, I missed. What that means is someone along the way discovered that instead of pinching the whole center out of it, what they did was is they just cut it just at the very beginning. You can see right along the bottom knuckle here and left some pieces in there. And that's why they said FI missed, fimming. If you do that, you have a potential for having four stems coming out. Now I've seen three come out. I've seen two if you go too low, but if you hit it just right and you hit it on the mark, you're gonna get four branches. So now I have four stems coming out that are gonna become main branches. So that increases your yield, that's important. The next thing to learn is what's called low stress training. What that means is, see what I'm doing? I'm actually taking these branches that are running this way and I'm anchoring around the pot and I'm pulling them down. 
What happens there is we're opening up the canopy to let in more light because as it gets bigger and denser, there's less light at the inner canopy and the lower canopy. You don't get the penetration. But when you open it up, you open up the penetration and each inner node, normally you'd have little small little buds there and you'd spend hours trimming them out and when they dry up, you could barely see them. But when you open it up to more light, those little inner nodes will start to turn upward. Now, each one of those branches, as they come out, you have the inner nodes all coming up as nice little nugs. So you, that's another technique to really increase your yields out of that one plant. So, you know, some of the new grows might only get an ounce to two ounces out of a plant. Now, as you start to hone your craft, and what I'm sharing with you now is 30 years plus of experience going through this, I'm trying to do is reduce and collapse your learning curve so that you meet with more success because we need more high quality growers in this place because we need people sharing quality medicine with friends and family because at the bottom of it all, the, the plant is a symbiotic relationship with humans for thousands of years. So going back just millennial that we've been using it for ourselves and hemp is another one. So we'll save the hemp topic for another episode here talking seaweed. but. So we've got the plant growing, it's growing, we pinched it back, we've got the branches, we've done some low stress training and things like that and things are going on really nice and we're paying attention to the plant. As you do this longer and longer, you'll start to look at the visuals of the plant and the plant will actually tell you what it needs. It's almost like if you're a pet owner, you kind of know what your pet wants by their attitudes and how they're reacting and how they're responding to you, whether they're hungry, gotta go out, that sort of thing. Your plants will do the same thing. They have signs, they have visuals that you look for. I walk into my room and I look at my plants, immediately I can identify if there's a challenge in there. I'll see it because all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, why are they drooping? Why are they curling under? Why are they not praying or tackling and going to the sunlight, right? I wanna figure that out and what's causing that, whether it's in the soil or if it's in the environment or something I sprayed on it, things like that. And that would just be foliar feeding. Um, but there's another device that you're going to want in your room and it's a critical piece. You're going to need to know what the temperature is in that room and the humidity in that room. So they have these, these little monitors that you can get. They're not that expensive, but you're going to look at the, uh, all the signs. I like to look at it as the dashboard in your car. You get in, how fast am I going? Do I have gas? Do I need oil? All these little dials and indicators tell you what you need just by at a glance. This device will tell you if the humidity is too high in there, you hit, humidity goes up over 70%. Underneath the leaf, these little things we call a stomata, it's like a mouth, it lets carbon dioxide come in and it lets out oxygen. Again, there's a symbiotic relation we have as humans with all the plants around us, the trees, everything. They give off oxygen. We give off carbon dioxide. Huh. We take in oxygen. They're the opposite. They take in carbon dioxide, let out oxygen. So we breathe that. So, but that little device is gonna tell you the temperature in the room, and you wanna be in the 70 to 75 is optimal. If you're running up at 80, that's, that's okay too. You can, it'll survive, it's not gonna hurt it. It'll actually transpire more moisture through and pull up more nutrients. So there's another benefit, that's more of an advanced technique. Uh, but you wanna look at that device, and the devices, there's some that will just give you the current temperature and humidity and that's it. I don't recommend that. I recommend ones that you actually have settings you can check the outside temperature and the inside temperature. Now I'm not concerned about outside temperature. I take the little probe and I actually hang it right at the top of my canopy. I want to know what the temperature is up here and I want to know what the temperature is down here. Now the device itself has a built-in uh, sensor, so I park it right next to the, right on the floor, or in my case, a flood table. I just leave it there. So I know that the temperature down at the roots are X, and then I know what the temperature is on the top of the canopy. That's why I'm using an indoor-outdoor, inside-outside sensor. I hang the sensor at the top. More importantly, I need to know what's happening in that room when the lights go out. Oh boy, that's where everything changes. Because when your light goes out, all of a sudden the heat source changes. The heat's going away. What that does, in a lot of cases, it spikes the humidity. The humidity, because the plant is still, it's still transpiring moisture. And all of a sudden, humidity goes from that nice, beautiful 50 to 60 range that you had, and it spikes up over 70. 
And now what do we got? Plant slowdown, plant stress, it's not breathing, things like that happen. So you want to know what your overnight or when the lights off sensor is saying. So my device I can push to see what the highs and the lows were. So highs and lows for the day and again that's going to be overnight too. So I'm looking at those settings to say oh shoot overnight it's spiked up. That tells me I need to make sure I have a dehumidifier in that space to bring the humidity down. Especially in the summertime when humidity around our area really starts to come up so you've got to battle it. So you've got to be aware of humidity which slows down growth. Temperature slows down growth. We don't want to be too cold, we don't want to be too hot. Remember, we're growing indoors and we're trying to mimic the outdoors. We're trying to mimic mother nature the best that we can so we can control that environment. So again, we've added the, uh, the temperature and humidity into the room, that's important. We talked about the stomatas under the leaves, those are important to understand how they function. Now we've grown out the plant and now we want to take it down. Now, I know if you're like me, <laughs> I couldn't resist pinching little buds along, along the way because I want to sample it because I didn't have anything. Don't do that. All right, you're going to do it. I know you will. I did it. You're going to do it. But take a small one down the bottom that's not as important. Don't take any of the bigger top ones figuring, hey, I'm going to go put it in the oven, dry it out, and you're going to have a bad experience. It's not going to get you the result you're looking for, and you're going to be discouraged. So leave it there. Just leave it there until it finishes because... Towards the end, you're going to see a nice little coal or a bud like this, and just in two weeks, it's going to go, it's going to get bigger, it's going to get dense, it's going to get more resins on it, and there's techniques for that too. But it's almost harvest time. How do I tell? You look at the pistillist hairs, the little white hairs that are coming out that turn brown. Like in the early days, we thought the brown hairs were what made it potent. <laughs> what did we know? Look at all the red hairs in that bud. Wow. Has nothing to do with the red hairs. Those are actually the the shafts that you want pollen granules to go on to actually create a seed. That little pod that the little hair comes out is waiting to get pollinated. Now that's why I like to keep at least one male in any of my seed grows because I isolate it and I collect the pollen. I have a pollen bank because I'm a breeder. I like to crossbreed one strain to another and create my own strains. That's a topic for another one, we'll talk about that. So now it's time to take down the plant and you're trying to figure out, okay, how do I do it? When do I do it? There's multiple ways of doing it. I like to use a little jeweler's loop or magnifying glass and I get right in there and I look at the I look at the bud and I look at the trichomes. Now the trichome maturity is important to me. I may have a trichome that's just clear. I may want to have one that's milky and I might have one that's amber. That's just the progression of its age. When it's clear, it's too young to take down. When it's, cl it's cloudy, okay, we can start thinking about the takedown. Then you've got amber. Now some growers want their plant to be as much amber as possible, which makes it more of a sedative effect, more down into the couch or couch lock effect. So some growers want that because they like that type of feeling. Me personally, I like more of an uplifted, elevated, excited, type of a feeling. So I look at my trichomes very closely. I might be around 10% amber and mostly milky. And then I'm making a decision. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do what's called topping. I'm going to take the big colas at the top first and I'm going to let it sit for another week. Maybe up to two weeks even. But at least another week because all the lower buds are now getting that energy and they're getting more light exposure from the light because the canopy is shorter because I took the tops off. Then I let those buds really bulk out a little bit more and get more resin production. You know, they call it greasing out. So I'm gonna do that. So I'm gonna do a top, let it stay. Plus, when you start to do trimming with your scissors and everything and you take down way too much, I've done it many times, you get excited about taking down your plant and you get in, next thing you know, you got this big pile and you can, I like to trim wet, okay? I'm not, I, I've done dry trimming. There's pros and cons to it. And both, you know, there's growers out there. You'll do what's best for you. I know some like to dry trim and they like to keep, encapsulate the bud and dry it by hanging, things like that, or on, on try, uh, drying racks. I get that. I personally have found that wet trimming for me works great. I've done them both. Uh, I like the wet trim. I'm gonna capture all of the sugar leaf anyways and I'm gonna let that dry, but uh, so again, we're looking at getting more yield out of that plant. And then we have to dry it and cure it. So we're almost there, guys. We're almost there. 
when you dry it, so I've had growers say, well, what's the difference between drying and curing? Isn't it the same? No, it's not, it's different. When you dry, you can either dry by hanging it. I like to use, to, depending on my environment, in some cases I've had strings going across the room where I just hang the plant on it, let it hang down in a dark, cool place. So I like to be at 50% humidity and I like to bring the temperature down if I can. If I can bring it down to 60, 65, that's excellent. I want it to dry slower, but I have air moving in the room. I don't have it blowing right on it. I actually have it moving and circulating in the room so that I don't get any type of bud mold or anything like that. So you need air movement, uh, but not directly on the cannabis because you're gonna off gas all the smells and the terpenes uh, within the trichome heads. That's again, that's another thing you'll learn as you stay with this craft. Uh, but we wanna dry anywhere on average, depending on the humidity levels within your environment, anywhere from seven to 10 days. And if it's very humid, you might have to go a little bit more, but you're gonna definitely need to run a dehumidifier if you're in an environment that the humidity is staying up too high. You want to bring that humidity down. So in seven to 10 days, you're going to dry it. And then what I like to do is take a branch and just break it. If it just bends, it's not ready. If it cracks and snaps, I'm listening for that snap. And so I'll just go along. I use a, currently, I use a drying um, uh, a bin, it's basically a rack that's stacked. And I'll put it on there, I'll come back in about five, six days, and I just take the smallest ones first, the real thin ones, and see if they crack. And then I go to the bigger ones, and I say, are they cracking yet? If they're just, again, if they're just bending, they're not ready, they have still have moisture in it. We wanna dry first. So we wait till we can snap that branch. Now what we're gonna do is we're gonna cure it. Now curing, there's different techniques for curing. I personally use what's called sea vaults. These sea vaults are stainless steel cans, where you have uh, uh, different manufacturers. I use Bovitas, which is a two-way moisture pack, and you can get different percentages of the relative humidity. You get 58s, you get 62s. I personally like to work with the 62s because I like to dry a cure slower. I put it in there, I have a moisture pack, and that's a two-way. It'll put moisture in and take moisture out. The reason I do that, it saves me the hassle of what's called burping. If you're using the big mason jars, on a daily basis, you're gonna to have to open it up and do a, a burp, as they say. You're letting some of that moisture come out. I like to gently just roll it, not a lot, because you don't wanna tumble off and knock off any of the trichomes and just have, a, have them stick into the glass. So you gently roll it, don't overstuff it. So again, we're burping, and you're gonna do that for daily basis for, for several weeks. Uh, so you're trying to get it to cure. So what you're looking for is the bud, when you squeeze it, does it flatten out and stay flat? Or when you squeeze it, does it go down and then slowly sponge back up? That's what we're looking for. Now it's cured properly. Not still too much moisture, you squeeze it, it'll just stay flat. Just right, it'll go down and it'll just slowly rise back up. Now you're ready to enjoy your cannabis. Now that may take several weeks, two to three weeks, four weeks. If you can leave it for a month or two months, that's optimal uh, to let it cure. And when I say cure, what we're looking for in the sense of say, um, brewing beer or wine. There's, wine isn't ready till it's ready, right? It has to, has to ferment for a certain period of time. Cannabis has to lose its moisture in the glandular trichome heads. Uh, if you ever smoked uh, weed that's fresh, but it burns the back of your throat, the reason it's burning the back of your throat is the moisture that's still in the trichomes that's burning off. And that's hot steam that's actually burning the back of your throat. So I like to think of it as like a grape. You know, you can eat a grape, it's delicious by itself, but then when you let it dry, it turns into a raisin, it's condensed, and it's very, very sweet. So think of the trichomes as getting all that moisture out and getting it to cure so the expressions come out, the flavors come out, the terpene profile comes out, in your nose you smell it, everything is really dialed in, and you have dank, beautiful fire in your hand, and everybody wants it. So. That's our segment today about growing and uh, growing in the city. Check us out on Instagram at City Grown. That's our handle out there. Check us out. Uh, I do a lot of posting of different things that's going on in my world and some of my little grows that I do at my own home. Just some fun stuff. Uh, if you're interested in really pursuing a career in the industry, check out our school at New England Grassroots Institute at grassroot420.com. Uh, we have all types of courses available. We're gonna be producing some business courses we, have, uh, we do consulting work. We have a lot of people coming to us and we're the oldest, longest standing uh, center here in New England. We've been here since 2012. 
So check us on online. If you're looking to pursue a career, you want to get into a dispensary, you're looking for a job, there's all sorts of ancillary businesses. The way you know that, go to any of the cannabis events coming up and you'll see that there's just so many vendors out there and that's all cannabis related. So thanks for checking us out today and we look forward to seeing you soon for another episode of Growing in the City. Hey everyone, this is Joe coming to you from Grow in the City. Thanks for joining us today at Talking Seaweed Studios. Having a great time with our friends here. And last time in our episode, we talked about growing. So let's talk about what can you do with it now that it's done drying and curing. Remember, the most important part, well, it's all important actually, but a really important part is the drying and curing process. This is where you can actually blow it out. So take your time there, don't rush it. Longer is better. But now that you have your finished cured product, you've got these beautiful herbs, there's different things that you can do with it. You could obviously smoke the nice beautiful herb itself, the flower, the bud, uh, that's great. You can vaporize it, which is a safer method of ingestion for your lungs. You know, as you get older like myself, you start to pay attention to that and uh, you're looking for harm reduction. The other thing is you can turn it into edibles. That's fantastic. We'll circle back and talk about that a little bit in a moment. And you can also do dry sifting. Dry sifting is a technique of basically knocking the trichomes that are dried right off of the bud itself, or it's also known as keef, keefing it. So you're trying to collect that resin, those resin heads, and you can do it with a screen sifting process. You can do it in a, a, a keef machine that just rolls it and tumbles it and knocks it off. That being said, for you, those of you that might be picking up herbs from friends, you know, I like to always have a magnifying glass. If I'm gonna pay street value on something, I'm really gonna look at it and see if it's been keefed. That means it's been knocked, the resin's been knocked off and I'm getting some product that looks, it might have a little bit of smell, but the real value is actually the trichome heads. I think we talked about this one of the episodes is it's basically the plant is like the pizza box. It carries the goodness on top of it and it's not so much the plant material. That's not what's getting you the euphoric feeling or the relief you're looking for. It's actually the, the resin heads that are dried. So we talk about uh, dry sifting. When you dry sift, there's other things you can do and there's plenty of videos out there. Maybe, maybe we'll actually do a video in the future of dry sifting here at the studio so you can actually see the process. But there's some great people out there that do that are real experts on dry sift. You can find them online, take a look and they use a screening process. These screens are actually silk screens and they have a certain uh, mesh count or a micron count. Um, so you need to look at that and there's different sizes because your trichome heads are different sizes and they'll pass through and then you can collect that and then if you have a really good clean and you've got all the contaminant out of it, you could actually dab that or what's really hot and exciting now is rosin. You could take that and squeeze it in a rosin press and squeeze it out to a real nice, clean, pure form. That's another thing you can do with it. But let's circle back a little bit and talk about the edibles and what you can do with edibles. So the first thing you've got to do is you've actually got to extract that oil off of the plant using a process uh, you can use uh, a coconut oil and do that extraction and get it out and then you turn that into butter. And then from the butter, I like to take a stick of butter and I can take a, a little packed cookie mix and just, it says one stick of butter, I make one stick of cannabis butter and I make my cookies. Now a little tip for you, when you're making your cookies, or actually let me just back up a little bit because I missed decarboxylation. You gotta decarb your cannabis first before you do your extraction. So when you take your, your material, and I like to put it in just a little glass um, uh, casserole dish. I put it in there, put my herbs in there, just lay them in and cover it with tin foil and seal it a little bit. Try to contain the smell. So be, be forewarned, you're gonna heat it up in your oven about 200 degrees for 30 minutes or though, in it you take plus or minus, uh, and you're gonna decarboxylate the herb because in its natural state, it's THCA, A is acid, it's the acid molecule that you're trying to heat up and release and activate your cannabis. So that when you do your extraction, now you have activated cannabis butter and then you can make your cookies. So back to a technique that I've learned when I cook my cookies as I actually cook it at low temperature. I know the package says 350 degrees, 
but I don't like to cook it that high. I'm going to off-gas some of the benefit there, so I don't want to cook it too at such a high temperature. I actually want to cook it low temperature and go a little bit longer. So what I like to do is 250 degrees. So I go 250, and I'll usually do that for about 25 minutes, and then I'll just look at the cookie. I like to use oatmeal cookies because oatmeal is a binder as well, uh, and that helps. Now. Now that I have the cookie, I'm looking at it, I can tell it might need another two or three minutes. Sometimes I'll go a little longer, but never any more than 30 minutes because I like my cookies nice and soft. I don't like them crunchy. If you like crunchy, just leave it in there for 35 minutes and they'll be nice and crunchy for you. Again, I like to have a kind of a soft cookie. It's delicious and so forth. So that's another thing you can do with it. Uh, you can do other methods uh, of making other products with it like hashish. Uh, you can make the hashish using bubble bags. Uh, use your bubble bags in water extraction. Now some people uh, love that process and some people like the dry sift process and press it through a rosin press to make the oils that way. So that's our episode today about some of the things you can do with your cannabis after you've cured it. Stay tuned for more episodes of Growing the City and check us out on Instagram at CityGrown.